He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Amen? Amen. Well, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to give a teaching on Easter. I have a lot of friends that I meet with uh, quite frequently, and a lot of them are not people of faith, but they have questions concerning faith. And there has been a trend over the past couple of weeks when I've met with some of my friends. They have asked me, can you explain Easter to me? They've heard of it. Some of them have maybe been involved with churches at, at, at different periods of their life, but they don't really understand what Easter is. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give a teaching or an explanation of Easter. In order to do that, we're actually going to begin with the resurrection and then we're going to take a quick little biblical journey. And the purpose for this teaching, the goal of this teaching, is when you exit this auditorium, you'll have a much clearer understanding of what Easter is all about and what Jesus has done for us. And so we're going to begin our time together by looking at the resurrection account found in the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, chapter 28. Book of Matthew, chapter 28. If you're utilizing a smartphone, you could turn there to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to begin reading in verse 1, Matthew 28, 1. Well, the heading here says the following, Jesus has risen. I would add, just as he said. Jesus has risen, 28, 1 in the book of Matthew. It's what the Bible tells us. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. This is not Mary, Jesus' mother. This is actually a different Mary who was married to one of Christ's cousins. Reading on. So they, they come to look at the tomb. Verse 2. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now, what you can't know from this account of Easter is that these two women were having a dialogue on the way to the tomb. You'll find that in the Gospel of Mark. And in the Gospel of Mark, they're concerned. They're carrying spices. They're coming to do the final preparations for Jesus' body. In their culture, when you died, you would have been left in the tomb for a year. And the exact anniversary of your entombment, your family would come they would gather together the bones, put it in a box. The box would be, be placed in the corner of the tomb, and that death slab would be opened up for another body. That's how it worked. But these ladies are coming to bring more spices and oil, and the reason for that was to try to keep down some of the odor as the body decomposed. Well, their conversation was about how are we going to roll back the stone? These two women were going to have to remove this massive stone that was rolled in front of the tomb. And so as we look at this, the scriptures tell us that they didn't have to do that. That an angel of the Lord came down, and I like to picture it this way. The angel of the Lord came down and flicked that huge stone out of the way and then plopped on it like a picnic bench. And so the angel of the Lord is there. He's removed this stone. And the Bible says his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. Reading on, it says, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook 
and became like dead men. You see, everyone who knew Jesus knew he'd said on the third day he would rise from the dead. Everyone knew that. And so in response to that, when the Jewish leaders went to have him executed, they went to the Roman government and said, listen, his disciples say on the third day he will rise, and so we're asking that you would place Roman centurions outside of the tomb so that when the disciples come to steal his body and to say that he's been raised from the dead, we can protect against that fraud. And so the Bible tells us that the women are moving towards the tomb. Mark tells us they have a discussion about how are they going to roll back the stone. The angel comes down, flicks the stone out of the way, sits on it. And I love how an African-American pastor articulated this in verse 4, where it says in the gospel, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The African-American pastor said this, they shook messed their pampers, and fainted. I like that. Because in the Greek, it really is a showing that they've lost control of their bodies. They were so scared that their bodies trembled and they lost control, to which he added, they messed their pampers and fainted. I like that. Reading on. says, the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Do you know that that is the most repeated command from God in all of Scripture? Do not be afraid. Jesus says to these women, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The purpose of this teaching is that you and I would understand the inner workings of the resurrection and Easter and what it's for and how it applies to you and to me. Now, in order to understand that, we're going to have to kind of do a little biblical journey to understand kind of the guts or the ingredients of the resurrection. Why did it happen? Now, when speaking of ingredients, I'm going to illustrate this teaching in the following way. If you could put up the first picture that I've got. This is an electric waffle iron. Last month, my wife went and bought one of these, and it changed our lives. Now, I have a very key question, and I, this is a serious question. I need to know the answer to this. We're actually going to vote publicly by raising our hands. I have a question for you. Are you a pancake person or a waffle person? This is extremely important. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask first, all of you that are pancake people, please raise your hand really high. All right, look around you. All right. Now, how many of us are waffle people? Raise your hand really high. 
The waffles have it. Good job. Same in the first service. The waffles have it. And if you're dating or married to a person that's a pancake person, and you're a waffle person, now you know the center for all the conflict you've been having through your entire relationship. But my wife bought this waffle maker, and my children got the first run of waffles, very rudely ate them all. So I was waiting for my turn for the waffles. While I was sitting there, I took the maple syrup bottle that we utilize. We've been buying gallons of this for about 10 years. I took the bottle, and here's the next picture. Here is the bottle, and I've covered it to keep the guilty party from going public. I don't know if you can see this label, but I noticed something that horrified me. In the ingredients... There is no maple syrup at all. <laughs> None. None. Not even less than 1%. No maple syrup. It's corn syrup, water sugar, things you can't pronounce, and fake color. I felt absolutely deceived. Completely deceived. When I read those ingredients, I determined I would never purchase this stuff again. Now, I covered up the manufacturer because I don't want to go public with the guilty party. And the reason why in the bottom I've covered it up is because there was a phone number you could call that said, if you have any comments on this product, call. So I got out my phone and I called them. And I said, do you know that your maple syrup has no maple syrup? I'm just kidding. I didn't call them. I didn't have the guts to do that. But I really wanted to badly. But when I looked at the ingredients... I recognized I'd been deceived. What I expected to be in maple syrup wasn't even there. There was no maple syrup. I was so irritated. I was aggravated. Felt deceived. We're going to go through the ingredients of the resurrection. The why. And when we exit... You're going to at least understand why Jesus did what he did and how the process happened. How did he get there? Because the ingredients of something matters. And so whether you've been around Easter for decades or maybe this is the first Easter sermon you've ever stayed awake for in your life, my prayer is we will exit understanding what Easter is all about. So now, We've read Matthew's account of the resurrection. What I could do biblically is take us all the way back to the book of Genesis. I could give you the complete biblical theology for Easter, what it's all about. And we could begin in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve fall into sin and the alien invader of sin enters into God's perfect creation. And God announces to Eve that your son will crush the serpent's head, but the serpent will bite his heel. It's the first reference of the crucifixion and what Christ would done do to overcome evil in this world. But instead of going back to the book of Genesis, all I want us to do is turn a few pages back into the book of Matthew where we pick up our story in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, we're going to begin looking at verse 13. 
In order for us to understand the resurrection, for, in order for us to understand Easter, here's where I'd like for us to begin. At first, the story's going to seem unrelated, but just bear with me. We'll tie it together. Matthew 16, 13 tells us this. It tells us that Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. In Hebrew, the word for Christ is Messiah. And in Greek, the word for Christ is Messiah. That word Christ or Messiah means anointed one. It speaks of that individual who would fulfill the Old Testament prophecies about how God would raise up a leader akin to Moses and akin to other great spiritual leaders and akin to King David. God would raise up this man and this man would have God's anointing. It literally means anointed one. The one who God would choose to be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And so here we read the heading. It says, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the Christ. He's the one that they've been looking for. The reading begins here in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, Jesus asks a profound question. Who do people say that I am? That's what Jesus asks. And his disciples mention John the Baptist. His disciples mention some Old Testament prophets. And then in verse 15, Jesus narrows it down. He asks his disciples, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Ultimately, this is the question of Easter. Who do you say that Jesus is? Not what do other people think and what do other people say, but what do you say or who do you say Jesus is? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah or you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, the fact that you understand that is like a heavy revy from heaven. It's what that is. He's the first person in Scripture who identifies Christ as to who he is, that he is the Christ, the Messiah the anointed one. And Jesus goes on, reading on in verse number 16, he says, or in verse number 18, he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, that's what Peter means in Greek, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I love the fact that Peter is named by Jesus, Peter. You know why? That's the second best name in all of the Bible, the name of Peter. I'll give Jesus his due, but after that, the next best name is Peter. But here's what's amazing. Peter identifies Christ as the Messiah, the anointed one, 
And the next thing Jesus mentions is the church. The church is based upon the confession of Christ and the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ. And these men have been walking with Jesus for years, and finally he turns to them and says, hey, listen, who do other people say I am? Then he says, but wait a minute, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes this incredible revelatory announcement. Jesus, you're not just a prophet. You're not just a humble guy. You are the Christ. You are the fulfillment of the entire Older Testament. You are the one that we have been waiting for. You're the anointed one. And Jesus mentions this thing called the church. And he says, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against this thing called the church. We need to talk about this because context matters tremendously. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus is in a region called Caesarea Philippi. And it's in this region that Jesus asks the question, who do people say that I am? Now, we have to understand something about this region. Again, context matters. The region called Caesarea Philippi has the name it does because you've got a guy named Herod Philip or Philip Herod. He's the governor of this area. And what he did in order to honor Caesar was he renamed the city, city Caesar for Caesar and Philip or Philippi after himself. It was a time when Roman leaders now had begun to attain divinity. Caesars were viewed as God. People were worship, worshiping them. Herod Philip begins to name the city after himself. You can kind of sense this whole idea of human ego. But he names the city after himself and he moves himself towards divinity. Not only that, in the spot where Jesus asks the question, it's an incredible spot from the vantage point of antiquity and here's why. It's because the place where they are, Caesarea Philippi, is where it is because there was this spring that gushed out of a cave and came down the mountainside. That cave was known as the gate of hell. It was the known as the gate of Hades. And people that lived during the time of Christ through mythology believed that it was out of that cave that demons would come out and inhabit the known world. That that cave literally went down into hell. That's why it was called the Gate of Hades. You can see pictures of it to this day. And on the cliffside around the Gate of Hell, you can see little rock-hewn digouts where there were idols that were placed there to be worshipped. Those spots for worship were reserved for the Greek god Pan. Half goat, half man. And there were sacrifices that were offered right there to the Greek god Pan. If you were to turn from the cliff and you were to look over the city of Caesarea Philippi, you would have seen 14 temples that had been dedicated to the false god Baal. Everywhere you looked, there was worship, whether it was of Caesar, of Philip, Herod, or it was Pan, or it was Baal. There was worship of all different kinds of gods all around that area. And it's in that context 
that Jesus asks the question. It wasn't in church. It wasn't in the synagogue. It was out there overlooking the city of Caesarea Philippi. Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And Jesus' response is this, Peter, I'm going to build my church on that confession. Jesus had not spoken of the church until one person confessed him as the the Christ. And then Jesus says, on that confession, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, Peter. Think about it. We sit here on Easter, over 2,000 years after the fact. I don't know of a single person who worships Caesar. I don't know of a single person who worships Philip. I don't know of a single person who worships Baal, nor do I know anyone that worships the Greek god Pan. But I know tens of thousands of people that worship Jesus. What Jesus said played out to be true, and no one but no one who was at the gate of Hades would have agreed with Christ when he said, If you think this is a religious spot and it's awesome, wait till you see my church. My church is going to outlive all of this. And the gates of hell will be forgotten, but my church will overcome forever. And it's there where Christ is recognized as the anointed one. But then Jesus does something else. He mentions another thing that he has not mentioned before. And we pick it up in Matthew 16 right after that confession, right after where Jesus talks about the church. In verse 21, here's what Christ says. He predicts his death. Verse 21 tells us, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Once the confession of who he was was announced publicly, Jesus talked about two things. The first one was the church, and the second one was what would happen to him. He was absolutely clear. Jesus said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to suffer, and then I will die. But on the third day, I will rise again. I'm not going to get into the gory details of the crucifixion. We have little ears here in the auditorium. But suffice it to say, it was so agonizing, and the suffering was so catastrophic, that the Greeks looked at crucifixion, and the pain and the suffering was so extreme that they didn't have a word for it. So a new word entered human vocabulary, and it's the word excruciating, excruciating. The word literally means out of the cross. That's what it means. It was a whole new level of suffering, 
a whole new level of torture. It was so incredibly agonizing that culture had to come up with a new word to describe it. And the scriptures tell us that Christ was crucified on the cross. Instead of going into the physical details of crucifixion, I would rather read for us what the prophet Isaiah said about crucifixion 700 years before Christ was executed. Please understand that crucifixion wasn't even heard of yet. Crucifixion came on the scene a hundred years before Christ was crucified. That's all. Yet here we have the prophet Isaiah where God is allowing him to prophesy 700 years into the future. And in Isaiah chapter 53, here's what the prophet says. Please listen. You'll come to understand why Jesus went to the cross. Isaiah 53. Please listen as I read or you can read along. Here's what was prophesied about Christ. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. Now he begins to talk to us about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from who the people hide their faces. He was despised and, they, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering of sin, he will also see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many. 
Isn't it incredible that prophetically speaking, the prophet Isaiah paints a portrait of the cross of Jesus and why he is there and what happened when he was on the cross? Now, we've come two-thirds of the way through. Jesus has announced that he must suffer and he must die. But there's a third part that he promised as well. The first two, he could do to himself. But the third one, the power of the Spirit of God, had to intervene. And so we pick up our story again in Matthew chapter 28. And in Matthew chapter 28, we read again about that incredible event where the two Marys come to the tomb and Christ is risen. He's been resurrected from the dead. But please understand this. No one expected Jesus to rise from the dead. No one. His closest disciples weren't looking for it. The Bible tells us that these Marys who have journeyed with him for years, they're not coming for the resurrection. They're bringing oil and spice to finish preparing a dead body. Even his closest disciples didn't expect it to happen. And yet when these two women come to the tomb, they find that the tomb is empty and the angel announces that he is risen from the dead just as he said. And the Bible declares that they were filled with joy and then they meet Jesus and he gives that age-old command, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Again, not a single person expected him to be alive on the third day. Not one. And yet, by the end of the Gospels, the beginning of the book of Acts, over 500 people have met Jesus in resurrected form. Some people ate a meal with him. One of the most famous people of all is Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas is the one that said to the other disciples, you've gotten to see him. I wasn't there when he appeared. And unless I can insert my hand up in his spear-pierced side, and unless I can stick my finger through his wrist where he was crucified, I will never believe. And Jesus appears to him and says, Thomas, insert your hand here. Place your finger in the wounds in my wrist and know that it's me. Know that it's me. What does the resurrection mean to you and to me? What does it mean? This week, I had a very profound experience where the resurrection of Jesus became real to me again. As the lead pastor at City Church, oftentimes I get difficult news. This week, four members of our church family were diagnosed with cancer. Two of them, it's stage four. One of them is just a young person who has two little children. And when I got those calls, I don't know how you are, but I was just simply out of emotional margin. I was done. I didn't feel like checking my texts. I didn't want to answer my phone, and I didn't want to look at my emails. Four within just a six-day period of people who are going to be facing the unthinkable. So I do what I often do. I went to visit them. 
And here's what was absolutely amazing as I met with each one of these people. They were thankful for great medical attention in our community. They were thankful for the loving support of family and friends. I will tell you that a couple of them didn't even know at the point when I visited with them and two still don't know how advanced the cancer is. They just know that they have it. They don't know how much time they have left unless God intervenes. But what blew my mind, even though I was exhausted and tired and really wished I didn't have to go sit in homes and talk with people, what shocked me is that every single one of them at some point in that brief visit that I was with them said this, Pete, we've experienced the presence of Jesus in the midst of this. We have experienced the presence of Christ. We've experienced a peace and a hope and a strength that doesn't come from us. But in the midst of that unthinkable news, they have saddled up next to and believed in a resurrected Christ. That type of peace that type of hope, you can't gump that up inside of you. But when you know Jesus, you recognize that he conquered death, he conquered hell, he conquered the grave. That even though he went into death, because he had lived a sinless life, death, hell, and the grave could not find entrance into him. So on the third day, he was resurrected victoriously over death, Hell in the grave. He was victorious. And when you know him, and when you walk with him, there's a peace and a joy and a strength that this world cannot give, nor can it take it away. And to sit in homes and to experience that with people was awesome and was profound. You see, Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He is risen just as he said. I've been in full-time ministry for 28 years. I've observed what it's like to sit by the deathbed of people who know the resurrected Christ and they exit this world with joy and anticipation and longing for the next world because they know him. I've also watched the struggles of people clawing to hang on to this life because they've never met him who is the resurrection and the life. What a difference it makes when you know him. I began this teaching by asking us a profound question. Are you a waffle person or a pancake person? Which are you? I'm going to tell you that I converted over the past month. I used to be a pancake person, but after my wife bought that waffle iron, I was converted. I won't use the same syrup again, but I was converted to waffles from pancakes. The bigger question, the biggest question for Easter is this, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he truly the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you believe that, you follow him. That's the response 
The response to believing that is that you follow him. Ultimately, it's not about checking doctrine off a sheet of paper. That's part of it. It's a, ultimately, it's this. It's about you looking at him and saying, I'm going to follow him for the rest of my life. The next teaching series is going to be all about follow Jesus. It's going to start next Sunday. But I can't help but to conclude our Easter celebration by asking you this question. Will you convert this morning? Will you say yes to him? Will you attach your soul and your eternity to the one who is the resurrection and the life? Peter's answer is a little bit more profound than I let on at the beginning. Here's what he said. You are the Christ. He could have stopped there, but he didn't. He said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Something dawned on Peter when he looked at everything that was offered in other aspects of religion. And what dawned on him at that moment when he looked at Christ, that Christ is the son of the living God. The other gods could do nothing to help people. My question to you is, what are you trusting in? What are you leaning on? I pray it would be Jesus, because he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's stand together as we close. As we stand together, the worship team is going to come forward. And they're going to lead us in one of my favorite hymns. It's entitled, In Christ Alone. And as we sing this together, I want you to listen to the ingredients of Christ. This is a masterfully written hymn. And throughout it, you will sing and you will read words that will declare things about Jesus. And my prayer is by the end of this hymn, if you've never chosen to follow Jesus, that you would do so by the end of this hymn as you sing about the ingredients of who he is and what he's done for us. Let's worship through this hymn together as we close. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my soul. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought. What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are stilled and striving cease My comforter, my all in all Here in the love of Christ I stand Christ
say he is risen and you respond with just as he said are you ready he is risen he is risen he is risen we're going to conclude our service at this time if you need prayer you want someone to pray with you or to pray for you our prayer team will be down front to help carry your burden to Christ but we're going to conclude at this time And as we do, I want to encourage you. If you've never chosen to follow Jesus, consider what you've heard this morning. And ask God to open the eyes of your heart that you would see Christ as the living Son of God. He will be faithful to you. So faithful. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. And may He cause His face to shine upon you And may he give you peace. God bless you. You can stay in worship or exit quietly. Happy Easter.
Yeah.